All right, Matthew 26, you guys ready? We're jumping in here. Um, we're going to finish up this chapter this week, and we're going to begin in verse number, um, verse number 57 here in just a moment. Uh, before we go into this, how many of you have ever been told something, and maybe your first response, whether externally or internally, was, I don't believe you? Anyone ever have that happen? Uh, maybe one of your kids, um, most kids between the ages of like three or four and seven or eight, sometime in that span enter the lying phase. If you're a parent, you know this. If you are alive, you probably went through it. I'm sure there are some exceptions to this, um, but most kids I've known between about those ages, there's just this lying phase. And sometimes they don't even know that they're lying, right? They just believe this thing that's fantastical. And uh, maybe, you know, maybe when you were in grade school, I know when I was young, um, when I was young, uh, Nintendo, Nintendo 64 was on the market. And it was a big thing. And, and we didn't have the internet as quite as accessibly as we do today. So you couldn't jump online and Google if something was true. And there was a kid in my class that I believed him for the longest time. His dad worked at Nintendo. I don't know if you're aware or not. Nintendo does not have headquarters in rural Indiana um, where I lived growing up. And so I can say very assuredly, his dad, now as an adult, I can say very assuredly, I don't think his dad worked for Nintendo. But in that moment, man, I just believed it. I was like, wow, his dad worked at Nintendo and they're doing this thing and it's going to be. And I just, you know, all of these theories that his kid said because his dad worked at Nintendo. Maybe you knew a kid like that. Maybe you were the kid like that. Maybe you're the kid that lied to me when I was a third grader and I believed you. But the fact is, is that oftentimes um, we experience things where we look around and we say, you know, whether someone's lying intentionally or whether it's, uh, you know, a truth that they believe that's just inaccurate, that happens all the time. And, and we say, well, I don't believe that to be true. And it's one thing not to believe everything that comes out of the mouth of another human being, because we are all fallible, which means we all make errors and we are all sinful, which also means this uh, at some time or another, we all lie. Right. Um, at the same time, some of us, if not, I, I would, I, I'm going to take back some of us. I'm going to take back that phrase. All of us at some times in our lives, not only begin to have the approach of, I don't believe you to another peer or an individual, but we go a step further and we, in fact, at times, whether by our words or our actions say to God, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. You know what we call this? Faithlessness. Faithlessness. And at some time or another, all of us are going to have a faithless moment. Even the most faithful Christian will have a moment when they are faithless. It's going to take place. It's going to happen in your life at some time or another. And you say, well, it's already happened. I would be willing to bet that it's going to happen again. Because sometimes we're just faithless. But here's a beautiful thing that we're going to discover about the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that God was prepared for our faithlessness. It didn't surprise him. It doesn't catch him off guard. But God is ready even when we are 
faithless. Watch what's happening in verse number 57. And, and leading up to this, what we've seen is we've seen that um, Christ has instituted what we call the Lord's Supper, what we'll be partaking of here in just a few minutes today. Uh, then he tells them that there's going to be someone who's going to betray them from among his followers, who we call the disciples or the apostles. And of these 12, one is going to betray them. They all say, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? And then uh, Jesus ends up telling him because one gets up, Peter and he says, I would never betray you. All these losers might, but I won't. And Jesus says, Peter, before the morning even comes, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me not once, not twice, three times. And so he gives this prophecy. And even still, Peter says, verse 35 of the same chapter, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And this is taking place. Um, we're not really sure what, even, what time, sometime in the evening of the day before the story that we're reading today. So the story we're getting to today is happening in the middle of the night. Jesus has said this to Peter just a few hours earlier. Then they go to this garden known as Gethsemane. They pray there. And in the middle of all of this time, as Jesus and these individuals, the disciples have spent time in prayer, this group of men come and they take hold of Jesus. They arrest Jesus and they're led by a man or they are introduced to Jesus by a man named Judas Iscariot. This is today where we get the, um, the, the phrase or the idea of someone being a Judas as being a traitor. Jesus, Judas was the picture of this in relationship to Jesus. So he comes and he, he gives Jesus a kiss, which is a greeting of a friend in this culture. He embraces him like a brother, welcomes him, and condemns him all at the same time. And so what we find now is after Jesus has been taken, the disciples, they flee, they run, they go. They don't stand there and fight to the death like they said they would, but instead they behave faithlessly. And verse 57 catches us up and says, then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest where the scribes and the elders had gathered. So while this group was sent out to arrest Jesus, Caiaphas, the high priest, has gathered um, a group that we um, know today as being called the Sanhedrin. This is a gathering of the religious and the political leaders within Israel. So they are all Jewish individuals, and they all kind of fall under the authority still of Rome, but they're allowed a certain degree of self-government. And so that is the men that are gathered here today. And they are prepared, they are ready, and they call this group to go grab Jesus, take him and to bring him. And so now Jesus is brought to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, where all of these have gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And so I think at some point, Peter thinks he's clever, that he's, oh, I'm going to run away. And then he follows at a distance and, and sees him going to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. In this time, um, the homes aren't like, when we say our house today, um, how many of you uh, in here have a house that you'd be comfortable seating um, a couple hundred people in? All right. Um, probably not many, if any of us, right? I'm um, just packing. We'd be like, okay, you'd be like sardines. If you're standing, yeah, sure. I guess we could probably fit everyone, but don't try to go to the bathroom and don't try to move. Um, the, the house that we're looking at here of Caiaphas, first of all, he was upper class. So we would have had a larger home. But then secondly, he was living in a culture where their house was actually considered um, this whole property. And so oftentimes the way these homes would be set up is there would be a living area, but much of the home was actually for 
for gathering. And so there would be large courtyards and even courtyards surrounded by other spaces. And so some hall is where these men have gathered. And then Peter and others, servants especially, are outside after dark, probably keeping watch to some degree, especially with Caiaphas having all these people over. They're kind of mingling. And Peter's hoping to get by in all the commotion unnoticed in the courtyard. He's following Jesus, and we don't know exactly why, but maybe he's looking for an opportunity to redeem himself. Or just a few moments earlier, he had taken his sword out, and he had cut off the ear of one of the high priest's servants. Jesus has miraculously healed this. And then he tells, he tells Peter, he says, put away your sword. Put it in its place. And so maybe Peter thinks that, okay, this is for later. And so he, uh, we don't know, but we see that Peter's following Jesus even still. Now what's going on in verse 59? The chief priests, the whole council, they're seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. Uh, I think what's happening here, Matthew clarifies that these are false testimonies that they're seeking, um, but I, I don't know that they at the time would have said these are false testimonies. Hey, who's willing to lie? Because there were individuals that were coming forward and willing to lie. But I think the priests and the, the leaders at this time, the Sanhedrin, I think they were looking for a testimony that they could actually latch onto and in some way justify as believing it to be true and being condemning of Jesus. But they found none in verse 60. So people are coming and they're testifying and there's not enough evidence and they're looking around and they're saying, this isn't justifiable. This doesn't meet the standards of our laws. And then what happens? At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And that's a close statement to actually what Jesus said. If you were to go over to John chapter number two, you'll actually find that Jesus in the first Passover of his earthly ministry, three years before this event that we're reading about today, he's standing in the temple and he's standing nearby at least. And he says to those that are around him, he says, I'm telling you, you destroy this temple and in three days, I'm going to raise it up. And so what temple did those surrounding him assume he meant? Well, a physical temple. What is he saying? He's going to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it? Who does this guy think he is? But in fact, John clarifies for us that Jesus is not speaking of a, uh, of a building temple. He was speaking of the temple of his body. He was prophesying of these things that were to come. But why did Jesus say it in such a cryptic way? Well, think about this. Three years prior, very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, he's saying the thing that's going to lead to his condemnation. Isn't that incredible? When Jesus said those words, we understand that Jesus, he, he knows all things, right? He's the son of God. He is God in the flesh. When Jesus says those words, don't you think he knows that these are going to be the very words that come back and get used as a testimony against him? And yet he says them anyways. And so he makes this statement, destroy the temple. It's misunderstood by these individuals. And understand this, Jesus doesn't speak up and clarify, does he? What happens next? The high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. Jesus at this moment could have stood up and he could have said, oh yeah, I said something like that, but here's what I meant by it. But what does he choose to do instead? 
just behave like most of you guys are. He stays silent. He stays silent. Even in the middle of this uh, temptation to defend himself. Because remember, does Jesus want the cross? Is he excited for the cross? Is he like, yippee, crucifixion's coming? No. He's in anguish over these moments. And yet, he remains silent. And in fact, this fulfills prophecies that go back to the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter number 53. The Bible tells us that as a sheep before his shearers is dumb, meaning mute, meaning quiet, he didn't open his mouth. And so here we see Jesus before those who are coming to take him and to end his life, he has no response. The high priest. So what does the high priest do? Um, how many of you, you, you get, it's a little frustrating when you ask someone a question and they just refuse to answer it. Um, hopefully it's mostly your kids, although I know it happens with adults too sometimes, but man, you just, you say something and they're just like, nope. Well, the high priest here, Caiaphas, he's, he's, he's like, okay, hello, I just asked you a question. And so what does he say in verse 63? He says, I adjure you, I command you, I tell you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And so he wants a straight answer. He wants Jesus to do one of two things here, really. He wants him to either condemn himself, because if this man gets up and says, I'm the son of God, he's making himself to be equal with God. And what's the penalty of that? That's blasphemy. It's worthy of death. John chapter 10, we actually see this playing out in real time. Jesus makes a statement. He says, I and my father are one. And uh, the people hear that, uh, the leaders hear that. And what do they do? They take up stones to stone him. That's blasphemy. And they're ready to kill him then and there. And so now he comes and says, hey, are you the Christ, the son of God? And he wants an answer to be either, either able to condemn him or he wants Jesus to say, no, 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 no. This is a big misunderstanding. But it's at moments knowing that his influence is gone, knowing that the crowds that had flocked to him saying, oh, come see the Christ. The moment he denies that he's the Christ, they're out of there. So one way or another, he wants this to come to an end. And what's the response that Jesus gives? Verse 64, he says, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. So what option does he choose? Well, he chooses the first. He chooses the first. He says, you've said it. You've said it. And then he goes and he says this. He says, uh, from now on, you will see the Son of Man. And understand this, the Son of Man. Um, there's a lot going on in this phrase. The most significant of this, I believe, goes all the way back to the book of Daniel, chapter number 7, where Daniel sees this incredible vision of one that is like to a Son of Man. And where is that Son of Man seated? He's seated at the right hand of God. He's one that is likened to the, uh, the son of man, but he rules and he reigns at the right hand of the father. And so this incredible imagery. And, and if you're Caiaphas, the high priest, um, if you're surrounded by the greatest scholars of Judaism in the day, when they use this phrase, son of man, it's not lost on them. You might look and you might say, wow, I'm not familiar with that before. And that's, and that's fine. But these men, they're hearing that and they're saying, wait a second. He said, what? He thinks he's who? And then he goes on, he says that this right, and the Son of Man is seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And so not only invoking this imagery from Daniel 7, saying this is who I am, 
He's also quoting Psalm 110, and he does it a couple more times, actually, in this passage. Using this phrase, being seated at the right hand. And this is a psalm of David as he prays to God and as he gives glory and honor to his son, the Christ, the Messiah. And here's what I want you to understand is taking place here. Jesus is faithful even in the face of adversity. Even in the face of what you and I would look at as opposition, as difficulty, as hardships. Does Jesus bat an eye at this? Does he turn tail and run? Does he walk away when the moments are difficult? No. That's our temptation oftentimes, isn't it? That's our temptation. We have to look and we say things, and there's wisdom in the phrase, don't get me wrong. We say things like, you know, hey, you got to pick your battles. Uh, You got to choose which hill you want to die on. Well, hey, listen, Jesus is picking that hill. The hill's called Calvary, okay? He's ready to go. And so here he is saying, this is who I am, and this is why I came. And even going back to the first days of his public ministry, he's making it obvious, right? Going back to the very beginning, he's speaking of the time that he would die, that that temple would be destroyed and then rebuilt in three days. This hasn't caught Jesus by surprise. And so in the middle of all of this, Jesus is faithful, even in the face of adversity, and he declares who he actually is. And how does the high priest interpret it? Because some people make the claim, some people make the claim, um, foolishly, I believe, that Jesus never claimed to be divine, that he never claimed to be um, the Son of God. And I think this is one clear evidence that that is not the case going along with John chapter 10 when he said, I and my father are one, and the way that the crowds interpreted that as, oh, he's making himself equal with God. And so I think that that's a ridiculous claim. But here, watch the response, because if Jesus did not mean to be um, interpreted that way, watch how Caiaphas and the others hear it. Verse 65, the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? And so what's he saying? He's saying, whoa, we were looking for two witnesses because we have to have those under the law. But now he said it from his own mouth and all of us heard it. So now we don't have two witnesses. We have dozens of witnesses. What other testimony are we looking for? This is a shut. This is an open and closed case. This is done. This is shut the books. It's over with. So what are we going to do in response? And what do they answer in verse 66? Three words. He deserves death. He deserves death. I don't know that I could think of a more inaccurate phrase. Ponder this with me for a moment. Who deserves death? Where does death come from? Romans chapter 6 tells us that the wages of sin is death. So death comes as a result of sin. Sin enters, then death. Sin, death, sin, death. Connection all throughout the scriptures. If Jesus deserves death, where is the thing that precedes that? The sin. Well, there's none found in him. He always does the things that please the Father. He was always righteous. He had always done the things that he ought to do. There was no sin found in him. In fact, Satan, the, the devil, the evil enemy, the tempter himself, comes to Jesus in Matthew chapter number 4, and he tries to tempt him at the very beginning of his ministry to fall into sin. And what does Jesus do? He overcomes this temptation. There's no temptation that, that he gave into. 
doesn't mean he didn't face temptation. In fact, the Bible tells us that he faced every temptation that you and I face, and yet he did it without sin. How incredible is that? So every temptation you and I have endured, he went through it, but no sin. And so if there is no sin, how is he deserving of death? Well, he isn't. Blatant falsehood that they're stating here. Verse 67, then they spit in his face. They struck him. Some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? So the crowd begins to mock. They begin to beat him. They begin to inflict this physical pain on him. And it's only just beginning, okay? Um, Slapping and spitting on and striking with the hands. I mean, this is minor compared to the stuff that he's about to face that we'll get more into next week. But watch, he says, they say this prophesy to it. To us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? And imagine in the middle of all of this, what's Jesus? Is he responding? Is he playing these games? But does he know the people who are striking him? Well, of course he does. And in fact, if you study and believe the Bible, we see that not only does he know their names, but in fact, the things that he's enduring, he's enduring that their sin might be forgiven. How incredible. The people who are coming here and they are mocking him and they are abusing him, he's going to the cross for them. While Jesus is enduring all of this, this is an inconvenient time to be a follower of Jesus, wouldn't you say? You're a Christian. This isn't the day you want to be a Christian. There might be times, sure, Easter, great day to be a Christian today. That wasn't the case here. This was a difficult time for those who were followers of Jesus. And can I tell you, church, inconvenient days will come. There will be days, and there are days, that it's difficult to be a follower of Jesus. Now, do all of us endure difficulty in the same degree and in the same ways? No. But there are days when it's hard to be a follower of Jesus. There are days that we want to behave faithlessly. We want to grab a hold of the reins. We want to do things ourselves. We want to lash out and behave contrary to the way that Jesus is demonstrating here in the book of Matthew. We want to do our own things. It happens. And as we live in a culture that is just increasingly secular, what we find is we find that those inconvenient days continue to come. But we shouldn't be surprised by that. In fact, Um, Paul writes to Timothy, very close to the passage that we read earlier today. Um, He writes to Timothy, and he says this fascinating statement. He says, all who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. All who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So it's a mark of a believer. It takes place. Understand this with me. Godliness is and always has been and always will be counter-cultural. It's counter-cultural. You don't get godly just by being in the world. In fact, quite the opposite of that. And that's not new for us today. It's existed through every generation. But our godliness, godliness is counter-cultural. And that phrase counter-cultural, as I was studying and preparing for this, is the one that kept coming to my mind. And it's a fascinating phrase. It was coined back in the 60s, an era of just counter-cultural behavior right? Um, and there's almost this sense of like a rebellion to the term. And can I tell you as a Christian, 
there's a large degree in which we're called to rebel, but we're not called to rebel against God or against godly authorities. We're called to rebel against the expectations that the culture and our world has placed on us. We're called to look around and say, oh, no, 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 no. That's not how we're going to behave. Because our culture today um, has taken on a mentality that's, oh, live and live. Other people can have their beliefs. And here, listen, I believe strongly in the freedom of religion that we have here in our country. That's a beautiful thing. But going a step further to tell those, hey, believe what you want to believe, but don't bother other people with it, that's contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel of Jesus tells us to go all into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. If you're supposed to preach the gospel to every creature, don't you think that includes the people that make up the populations of this world? Well, absolutely. Now, don't you think we're going to run into people that have different beliefs about God and different beliefs about this world as we do that? Yeah. Does that mean that we shouldn't do that out of uh, fear of offending them? Can I tell you, Christians, the gospel's offensive. It is offensive. That doesn't mean we have to be offensive in our behavior and how we go about that. That's not what I'm saying. The gospel in itself is offensive. Paul calls it a stumbling block and a rock of offense. Hello? But that doesn't get us off the hook for taking the gospel to those who need it. And so we go into places where they look and they say, that, that message that you have, uh, it's, it's not welcome here. And we say, hey, listen, um, I serve someone who's a lot bigger and I respect and fear a lot more than you. So we're doing it anyways. And so what we find is that it is not easy to be a Christian oftentimes. And in fact, um, I'm really excited. Um, as we get on the other side of Easter, um, we're going to be wrapping up the book of Matthew here in just a few weeks. I want to plant this seed with you, church. Um, end of April on the 23rd, we're going to be jumping into a new study. We're going to finish up Matthew. And so I've been having people ask, what are we doing next? We're going to jump into it. And we're just going to go through the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. And what we find in Revelation is we find a church we find seven churches, in fact, that are surrounded by godlessness, while they are called to godliness. And so Jesus himself, I love this, because Jesus himself reveals himself to John, says, hey, write these letters to these seven churches. Here's what I have to say to each of them. And each of them, he gives them, um, many of them, he gives praise. Most of them, he gives criticism. And then he says this, to those who overcome or to those who conquer, here's what you have to look forward to. Christians, did you know we're called to be overcomers? We're called to overcome the world that we live in. And in fact, the thing is, is about the world that's kind of funny is that oftentimes that world that we live in, when we're not careful, it gets inside of us. And so instead of overcoming the world, we become like the world. Sounds similar, not the same. And so what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about overcoming. Overcoming. For eight weeks, we're going to introduce and go through these seven sections. We're going to talk about overcoming, what it means to overcome as a church following after Jesus. I'm thrilled just to begin this study with you. I've begun the preparation for it, and I can't express just, I think these things are so appropriate, both for our church as well as the culture that we live in. And so in just a few weeks, we'll be jumping into that. If you want to start reading ahead of time, you can start dipping your toes into it and getting ready. Um, I'm excited for this here in just about a month. But what we see is we see that in the middle of all of this, Christianity, being a follower of Jesus, is not a simple thing. And then we run into Peter. And uh, how can I summarize what we're about to see with Peter? Peter 
Peter's out. Watch what happens in 69, verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside the courtyard, in the courtyard. A servant girl came to him and said, you also were with Jesus, the Galilean. So the servant girl comes up, and what does Jesus do? Oh, you're with Jesus. I, I've seen you before. What does he say? He denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you mean. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, no, that's not me. When he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. He hears this. Again, he denies it with an oath. He says, I swear to you by, we don't even know what, but I swear to you by, I do not know the man. But now, as you can imagine, all this commotion's getting up, and they're like, yeah, no, I think that is the guy. All this is happening. And then after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. You see, the problem with all of Peter's lying here is, uh, where is Peter at? What city are they in? They're in Jerusalem, metropolitan area. They have a very distinct way of speaking. Where is Peter from? He's from Galilee. He's, uh, maybe we could say it this way. He's a hick. And so he's in the city, and he's like, y'all don't know what you're talking about. And they're like, Peter, hello, dude. No, what do you think you are? We don't know exactly what, but man, he is coming, and he's saying these things, and he's just like, they're like, no, you're not from here. We don't care where you're from, but it's not here. We know a Galilean accent when we hear one. And so they look at Peter, and they're like, why are you lying about this? Your accent's betraying you. Then he began, watch this, he's so adamant against this. He began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. He gets irate at these true accusations. And as soon as these words come out of his mouth, watch this, immediately the rooster crowed. You kidding me? Immediately. The rooster crowed. Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Just hours before. Hours before. The rooster crows. Peter remembers. And what does Peter do? He went out and wept bitterly. See, Peter remembers. He recalls all of these things. And the stuff that he said he would never do just hours before is exactly what he finds himself doing. Can I tell you, Christian, be careful those who think you stand, lest you fall. Isn't that what we see with Peter here? And we see the fruit of faithlessness very, very clearly. The fruit of faithlessness is this. It's bitter. It's bitter. To this day, um, I like a lot of fruit. I don't like grapefruit. To this day. <laughs> Something about it in my mouth, I take a bite, and it just, I just feel like I get punched in the mouth by bitterness. I just can't get past it. Now take that, multiply it by a billion, okay? And then it's something you just can't get. Faithlessness brings about bitter results. In fact, the scripture tells us the things that aren't of faith, you know what they are? Sin. 
That's as simple as it is. And in fact, without faith, it's impossible to please God, Hebrews tells us. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. So what are you doing in your life that's taking any kind of faith right now? What's the thing that you're stepping out into? So many times we look around in our lives and we feel just, oh, I'm, I'm unsatisfied by, I'm, oh, I don't feel, oh, this, oh, that, the other thing. And we're content to just live faithlessly. Now, listen, having faith and stepping out by faith doesn't mean that days are easy and, oh, yeah, this is great and this is simple. and this is No, that's not what it means at all. But it does mean this. It means that we are following someone who knows better than you do. You want to live faithlessly? You want to just plot your own course and just march on your merry way? Cool. You know what that gets you? Lost. The fact is, is that the fruit of faithlessness here, we look at we look at Peter, everything that's going on in his life, and some have asked me, as I've had this conversation, taught this passage before, they said, is Peter a believer at this point? Is he a Christian at this point? To be honest with you, I don't know. There's some evidence that he had a head knowledge for sure. But we look at this and we're like, what is Jesus, what, is, what do we see in, in uh, 2 Timothy? If you deny him, he's going to deny you. But I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this, by the time we see Peter again in Acts chapter 2, something's happened because, man, the boy gets up in front of thousands of people and says, hey, guys, y'all killed Jesus. He was the son of God. No sin was in him, and yet you did this. Man, that took some guts. That's the Peter he thought he was earlier this night. But through God, through the power of the Spirit, through the faith that he now has, that he's able to get out there and show by the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ, man, how incredible, how incredible the transformation that took place in just a couple months, if you care to know, about 50 days. So what we see is we see this, man, the fruit of faithlessness that he's he's dealing with right now, bitter, bitter. Because the thing is, is that as we're following Jesus, even through hardships, I mean, it's like a cloud with a silver lining. You're like, okay, yeah, this is dark. Yeah, I can't see in front of me. Yeah, this is discouraging. But I know Jesus is there with me. When we start blazing the trail on our own and Jesus is going that way and we're going that way, God help you. Okay? The fact is, is that maybe you're not aware of this, but... um. You can be hard to love. Maybe it's a surprise for you. <laughs> Me, never know. <laughs> you can be hard to love. How, oh, you say, Nate, that's really like, wow, what a harsh thing to say. Here's how I know it, because we all can be. Look at Peter here. Man, was Peter being hard to love? Every five minutes, Jesus is like, Peter, shut up. I mean, that's like, can you imagine being Jesus? You're going to your death. You're taking the sin of the world on your shoulders so that you can go to the cross, take the righteousness that you possess and and give it to those who don't have their own righteousness and take your sin on, their sin on you. Can you just imagine what Jesus is going through? And every five minutes, he's having to go, Peter, shut up. I mean, it's just incredible. And yet, as he's doing all of this, why does he do it all? I think John chapter 3, verse number 16, possibly the best-known verse in all of the Scripture, says it so, so well. This is why it's so beloved. Jesus is speaking, and he says this, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal, everlasting, forever life. How incredible, how incredible this is. That is good news. And here's what we call the good news. We call that the gospel. 
See, church, churches exist to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Did you know that? So take the gospel of Jesus from these seats, from this place, out into a community that is without Jesus to make disciples, those who follow after Jesus, so that their lives can be changed, they can be made right with God, God receives all the glory, and then guess what? We go do it again. It doesn't end. It continues until Christ returns for us. And you know what? One of the things I love about the gospel is Jesus didn't come for perfect people. In fact, Romans chapter 5, verse number 8 says this, God commended, he demonstrated, he manifested his love toward us. In that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for you because you were good enough for it. No, quite the opposite. He died for you because you needed it. And so this gospel of Jesus Christ permeates and invades. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 13, I think says it so, so, so well. We read it just a few moments ago. Even when you are faithless, Jesus is still faithful. Even when you're faithless, Jesus is still faithful. Maybe you're sitting in this room today and, and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're coming in and you say, well, listen, listen, Nate, you don't know all the stuff I've done. You don't know all the baggage that I'm bringing into this place. You don't know this or you don't know that. And can I tell you this? You don't know everything I've done. You don't know everything the person next to you has done. Listen, if you could see into the lives of the people in this room and you knew all of the thoughts and you knew the sin, because listen, we still got it. If you knew the sin, I won't even say of the people in this room, if you knew the sin of the person sitting up here opening the word of God with you, you'd be heading for those doors so fast. It's not even funny. Why? Because we are all sinners. We're all sinners in need of a savior. And even in the moments when we are faithless, God's still faithful. God's still faithful. And so if you've never come to Jesus and you've been resisting and resisting and resisting and just saying, I don't understand how, listen, neither do I, but it doesn't mean it's not true. I don't understand a lot of things. I don't understand gravity. I don't understand, oh, I won't go into all the things I don't understand, okay? There's a lot of them. Doesn't mean they're not true. Faithfulness of God, I don't get it. But I don't have to get it. Because through faith, we believe in it. And even in those moments when we are faithless, God is still faithful. Church, can I just ask this question? Can I just pose this to you? What would a church filled with faith look like? What would a church filled with faith look like? Maybe boldly taking Christ into our neighborhoods and our workplaces. Maybe, maybe it looks like looking at the obstacles that is in our lives, that is, that is in front of us, knowing that God is working in and through them already. And maybe, maybe it means this. You see what God is already doing. He's already calling you to move in a specific direction. Maybe it means actually taking steps in that direction. But I'll tell you, it does mean this. I know what it means. I mean, it means advancing the gospel. Advancing the gospel. Because church, this is why we exist. No matter what else we do, no matter how great our, our music is, and I love our music, no matter how mediocre our preaching is, we have a beautiful word of God, right? So we advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. We advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Does it take faith? Yes. Does it take work? Yes. 
That's what we're called to do. So church, as we wrap up our time together this morning, I just want to take a second and remind you, how does God respond? Not if, but when we are faithless. Answer, he's faithful. He's faithful.